God is the source and owner of the wealth and the material possessions that have been entrusted to you and I. God is the one who owns all things. And that which he has entrusted to us, we are to not use them for personal gain, for personal glory, but for God's glory. My favorite book on prayer is Valley of Vision, and I will begin by reading the opening prayer, which is titled The Valley of Vision. This is a collection of prayers by the Puritans. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow. Thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen. The Lord has given us wealth and material possessions. And in the gospel according to Luke, in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34, Jesus describes two contrasting ways that one can use the wealth and the material possessions that he has entrusted to them so that we will be storing up our treasure with God in heaven. Two contrasting ways to use one's wealth and material possessions so that you will indeed store up treasures with God in heaven. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and I'll be reading verses 13 through 34, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel. Luke records, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, And some from the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brothers to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I shall do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you prepared? So is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you by worrying can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Therefore, if you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? 
Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for your Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give it as charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and absolutely authoritative and sufficient word. In the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 11, in verses, 20, in verses 39 through 40, Jesus calls the Pharisees fools. Because they were greedy. He says that they are full of robbery and plunder. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus warns that the Pharisees and the scholars of the law are leading people astray. They'll lead them to their own destruction. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus opens with a warning. He warns his disciples. He says, be on guard. Be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The Pharisees had been stalking Jesus, firing antagonistic questions at him, trying to catch him out, trying to trap him. The Pharisees were supposed to be God's leaders. They were supposed to be leading God's people. But instead, they were filled with greed, and they placed heavy burdens upon God's people, and they aimed was to destroy the gospel which Jesus and his disciples preached, a gospel of forgiveness. Luke says in verse 1 that so many were present, so many thousands of the crowd had gathered together that they were trampling upon one another. That's a lot of people. And then throughout this chapter into chapter 13 verse 9, Jesus engages in discourse and he alternates between addressing the crowd and addressing his disciples. In the first 12 verses of Luke chapter 12, Jesus taught his disciples what they were to what they were required to do. They were to not only avoid and expose the Pharisees' heresy, but they should also be prepared to proclaim the truth boldly, fearlessly, widely, even in the face of opposition and persecution that was soon coming. And they could rest in the fact that God and His providence would take care of them. Remembering, as Jesus says at the end of chapter 12, into chapter 13, that the day of final judgment is coming. The foolish, heretical Pharisees, they will receive their just judgment. But Jesus' disciples will likewise have to give an account for everything that they've done and everything that they've said. As the disciples of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we too recognize that we will have to stand and give an account for how we have lived our lives here on this earth, how we have stewarded that which God has entrusted to us, how we have used our words, our time, and the gifts that God's entrusted to us. And it's within this context that we find our passage sandwiched in between, so to speak, these bookends. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 through 34. A portion of Scripture which has often been called the parable of the rich fool, storing up treasure with God in heaven. The message Jesus proclaimed is very, very clear. He says, Entrust, God has entrusted wealth and material possessions to you, to each of us, to steward for His glory. Fools who fail to take into account the inevitability of death, 
They misuse their possessions, using them for selfish gratification rather than for God. Whereas Jesus' disciples are to be wise and generous stewards of what God has entrusted, recognizing that we are merely stewards of God's possession. We are to use them for God's glory rather than for personal glory, and thus storing up treasures with God in heaven where neither thieves nor moths can even touch. The Lord has entrusted us with riches and earthly belongings, some more than others. And in the gospel according to Luke, in chapter 12, verses 13 through 34, Jesus describes two contrasting ways that we use our wealth and possessions, that one can use their wealth and possessions, so as to ensure that you use them, that you store up treasures with God in heaven. The first way is the foolish way. We could call it the foolishness of greed. The foolishness of greed, which we see in verses 13 through 21. The foolishness of greed. This topic of greed is introduced when a bystander demands that Jesus come and mediate a divided relationship, a dispute over a family inheritance. In verses 16 through 21, Jesus responds by telling the crowd a parable where he paints a bleak picture of someone who stores up their treasures for himself on this earth and not with God in heaven. And you can divide this parable, this parable of this rich fool, into four sections or four seasons of life. The opening scene is in verse 16 where a rich man's land is yielding an abundant harvest. And like any good story, soon you introduce to the problem, the crisis. And we see the crisis in verse 17. The rich man faces a great difficulty. How am I going to store this abundant harvest? In verse 18 and 19, he comes up with a solution. This is the third scene. I'm going to construct a new barn to store these many possessions. But the end of the story, verse 20 and 21, is God intervening, bringing His judgment and punishment upon this rich fool. So what was it that prompted Jesus to tell this parable? Well, as you look at the flow of the narrative, the chapter begins with Him exhorting and encouraging His disciples until he is rudely interrupted by a young man, in verse 13, who commands Jesus, saying, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. This young man felt cheated by his older brother, who was now looking after the father's inheritance. The old covenant, the Mosaic law, it also included a civil, a civil, and, a, a civil and a criminal code, not just ritual and, and ceremonial but civil and criminal code. And thus it was not uncommon for one to come with a complaint over inheritance to take it to the religious leader. This young man was so wrapped up in his own petty concerns that he was completely deaf to Jesus' previous teaching on the future events. His only concern was the here and now, getting his hands on some cash. And instead of coming to Jesus in humility and grace, asking for counsel, explaining the difficult situation that he's in, that he and his brother are at odds, asking if Jesus would kindly mediate, this young man commands Jesus to assert his authority to do what he has deemed right in his own mind. This young man had already decided what needed to be done, and he was commanding Jesus to go and make his wish come true. In verse 14, Jesus responds by saying, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus was more concerned about this young man's heart issue than about resolving this man's money concern. What is the root cause of quarrels? James has an answer for us. 
James answers that very question in James chapter 4, 1 through 3. He asks, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that are at war? They're waging war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Jesus knew the once, the passions of this young man's heart. If you were a biblical counselor and you were to give this young man some counseling advice, you would need to first of all determine what is the idol within this young man's heart. What, what is the idol in this young man's heart? Well, the answer is found in the next verse. In verse 15, Jesus said to them, Watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So who's Jesus speaking to here? Speaking to his disciples. Jesus warns his disciples of the dangers of wealth. And he uses this man, this young man, as an object lesson to warn his disciples about greed. The love of money leads to greed, which ultimately leads to destruction. Greed, fueled by a fixation on amassing wealth, is the root of all evil. It will destroy us. And so Jesus reminds us that what truly matters is not how much wealth you accumulate, but rather the state of your relationship with God. Greed pursues wealth and possessions as the meaning, the purpose, the goal of life. Greed is idolatry. But Jesus says that one's life consists not in the abundance of one's possessions. In John 17 verse 3, Jesus said that the true meaning of life, the true meaning of life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom He sent. God has created us to know Him, to worship Him, to live our lives under His reign, His rule as listed, as delineated in God's Word, as revealed in His Word. We are to live for Him, in obedience to Him, for His glory. But sadly, man all too often substitutes the enjoyment and worship of God with the enjoyment and worship of wealth and possessions. Proverbs tells us that it is the blessing of Yahweh that makes rich, and He adds no pain with it. Proverbs 10 verse 22. The classical wisdom of the day said that one becomes rich through diligence and self-denial, and the, re the reward allotted to him is this. When he says, I have found rest... And now I shall feast on my goods, for he does not know how long it will be until he leaves them to others and dies. Jesus, in contrast to the classical wisdom of the day, says, such a one is a fool. And then he tells his disciples a parable, a very well-known parable, the parable of the rich fool. We introduced to this rich man in verse 16. We see that he had land, which was very productive. The Hebrews understood Psalm 24 verse 1, which says that the earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. They knew that Yahweh had already said in Psalm 50 verse 10 through 12 that, that every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. Everything that moves in the field is mine. In Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through 29, when describing the kingdom of God, Jesus said that the seed scattered on the ground grows, and the farmer doesn't know how it grows. And he says that the, father, that the farmer goes to sleep and rises night and day, and the seed all by itself sprouts and grows. Obviously, God is the one 
who owns this land. God is the one who causes the seed to grow, to produce this abundance, this harvest. But the rich man in this parable, he doesn't acknowledge, he doesn't thank God for his bountiful harvest. In contrast to Psalm 24 verse 1, which speaks about everything belonging to Yahweh, this rich man says in verse 17 through 19, he says, my crop, my bonds, my grain, my goods, my soul. His life is all about him and not God. It's all about me, myself, and I. In fact, I is mentioned six times in these verses. This man is totally self-absorbed. Verse 17 indicates that in his own eyes, this rich man's dilemma is not a moral one, it's a practical one. He has a surplus, and the only question that he has in his mind is, where can I store it? Where can I store it for myself? Where can I preserve it and protect it? It never occurs to him that he's already rich, that he doesn't need any more. The fool's godlessness is revealed through his insatiable lust for more and more. In the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 11, verse 3, Jesus taught us to pray. Give us each day our daily bread. Not a year's, not a month's, not a week's, each day our daily bread. This rich fool had more than enough for many years to come. This man's problem was not what am I going to do with my surplus, my abundant surplus. His real problem was his greed, his ruthless craving for more and more and more irrespective of the consequences upon others. If he can hoard his grain, then when the price increases, he can sell it at a higher price and profit from the needs of others. Proverbs 11 verse 26 condemns this practice. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Jeremiah 17 11 says, as a partridge that hatches eggs which, which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, amasses wealth unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him. And in the end, he will be a wicked fool. This man is a covetous person, consumed by his cravings, comforted by and proud of his possessions. He has a solution, verse 18. This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build a larger one and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Verse 19 indicates that the reason for him hoarding this grain is because it gives him a sense of security. Again, still speaking to himself, he says, Soul, you have many good things laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him in verse 20, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you prepared? The foolish man will not feast on this earth again, nor will he feast at the heavenly banquet either. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The rich fool demonstrates by his words and his deeds that he is a practical atheist. He essentially declares there is no God. And in the Greek, there's a play on words here. This farmer looks at all the many goods which are laid up for him for many years to come. And thus he says to himself, take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. The Greek word for be merry at the end of verse 19 is euphreno, which comes from euphron. And the Greek word for fool, which we see in the beginning of verse 20, is Afron. Can you hear the similarity there? Euphreno, Afron. Euphron, Afron. The man's intent to store up his goods will enable him to live his life, to live it up, to be merry. But God says, fool, it's going to cost you your life. The one who began the story behind the scenes, producing the growth 
and the abundant harvest. The one who has been pushed out, ignored, rejected, disobeyed. He now makes his appearance directly, exposing this farmer's foolishness. And he says to this fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. Required is actually a third person plural verb, which means you could translate it as they are requiring, they are demanding your soul. What or who is the they, this third person referring to, the third person plural? It refers to the many goods, the many goods that this man has laid up in verse 19. These many goods are requiring, demanding your soul, as Jesus says in verse 20. At the end of verse 20, God asks this rich fool, who will own what you prepared? Who will own it? Which should remind you of the initial inheritance dispute that took place in verse 13, which prompted Jesus teaching this parable in the first place. And really what is implied here is that as his family mourn his death, as his family mourn the death of this rich father, husband, they too will find themselves arguing and fighting over the many goods that are stored up, stashed away in this big barn. Some may never speak to each other again. God concludes in verse 21 by saying, such will be the case for everyone who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There's no exceptions. This is the horrible end for those who store up treasure for themselves upon this earth. This man was a fool. But he thought that his things, rather than God, could satisfy him, could provide him with security. But it was his lust for these very things that condemned him to hell. And it would be those same things that would split his family. So how should we use our wealth and material possessions that God has entrusted to us? Jesus says, give it away. Be generous. Give generously. St. Augustine said of this rich fool, he did not realize that the bellies of the poor are much safer storerooms than his barns. Having described the absolute foolishness of storing treasures on earth, using one's wealth and material possessions for self and not for God, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples, teaching them how to store up treasures in heaven. Remember, Jesus is contrasting two ways that one uses one's wealth and possessions so that you will know how to store up your treasures with God in heaven. The first way, which is sadly by far the most common way, especially today, is the foolish way. Trying to accumulate as much as possible so that one can be self-sufficient and secure and satisfied. But that's not God's design. That's not God's will for the wealth and the material possessions He's entrusted to us. We are to use them, or shall I say we are rather to invest them in such a way that we'll be storing them up with God in heaven. So what do you think prevents us from this kind of, anxi- uh, what kind, this kind of generosity? I gave the answer away. It's anxiety. Being worried that you might not have enough for yourself. And so the next portion of Scripture in verses 22 through 34 Jesus shows his disciples that anxiety is pointless and unfounded by describing the second way that we are to use our wealth and possessions. The second way is the fruitful way. We could call it the fruitfulness of generosity. The fruitfulness of generosity in contrast to the foolishness of greed, right? And we see this in verse 22 through 34. The fruitfulness of generosity. After describing this young fool's greed to the crowd, Jesus turns to his disciples to teach them how they can be wise stewards 
of what he has entrusted to them so that they can store up their treasures in heaven. And in this section, we see that Jesus issues 10 commands. In verse 22, he commands them saying, do not worry. In verse 24, he says, consider the ravens. Verse 27, consider the lilies. He gives two commands in verse 29. He says, do not seek what you will eat or what you will drink, and do not keep on worrying. In verse 31, he says, but seek his kingdom. Verse 32, do not fear. And then three commands in verse 33, sell your possessions, give it as charity, and make yourself money belts which do not wear out, an unfading treasure in heaven. You could summarize these ten commands into three. Have faith that God will provide you everything that you need. Trust God. Have faith in God. Secondly, when you're tempted to doubt that, look at the birds. Look at the flowers as a visible proof that God will indeed take care of you. Don't worry. And then third and finally, give. Give what God has entrusted to you, and in so doing, you'll be storing up your treasures with God in heaven, investing in eternity. Jesus is not saying that we should act irresponsibly by not providing for our needs. Of course, He knows what we need. He knows the material possessions that are necessary in order for us to live in this day and age. And that's exactly why He taught His disciples to pray. Give us this day our bread, our daily bread. But Jesus is fully aware of the tyranny of things. And he's warning against it. One of the most, spirit, one of the most significant impediments to our spiritual growth is the selfish pursuit of wealth and possessions. It's a hindrance. Therefore, you and I need to be careful We need to take watch. We need to be warned. We need to be careful that earthly treasures do not become a snare. Paul also had much to say on this topic. In 1 Timothy, in his letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, he says in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunged men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by aspiring to have it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then he continues in verse 17 and 19. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Command them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to to share, storing up for themselves treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. 1 Timothy 6. Since material things are often foolishly viewed as the source of security, they very often cause us great anxiety. And yet Jesus says in verse 22 and 23, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. At the heart of anxiety is doubt, doubt in God, doubt in God's promise to take care of our needs. Anxiety over food and clothing reveals that we have been deceived in thinking that human needs, human practical needs, is of utmost importance. And yet Jesus says, no, no, your life consists of far more, far more than merely these physical needs. And then Jesus goes to curb our anxiety, and he points to the birds and to the flowers. And he provides an illustration, a, a tangible picture to teach and reinforce a very important theological truth. 
And in his illustration, it's, it's perfect. It's brilliant. It's an excellent illustration. Because every time that you and I walk outside and we see the birds and we see the flowers, we can be reminded of what Jesus is teaching us. In verse 24, Jesus says, consider the ravens, which by the way, according to the old covenant, ravens were regarded as unclean, an abomination. God says, consider the ravens. God feeds these birds without them having to do any work. They don't sow the seed. They don't water it. All that they do is eat it. Jesus contrasts these unclean ravens who are fed by God with us, who hustle and bustle and build these elaborate structures and amass food and other possessions. Do you see the connection? God feeds these birds in the same way that he brings forth this harvest out of the ground. And considering how God cares for these birds, these creatures that frighten my wife, At the end of verse 24, Jesus says something that really should be so obvious to us. You are far more valuable than the birds. The theological truth is very clear. If God feeds the birds, then how much more so you who are of greater worth? God will feed you. Your unwarranted, unfounded worry only demonstrates your lack of trust in God. In verse 25 and 26, Jesus talks about the impossibility of adding time to one's life. And he asks this question, And which of you, by worrying, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? The anticipated answer, of course, emphatically, is no one. None of us can. The mortality rate remains steadfast at 100%. The probability cannot be more certain. There is a 100% guarantee that within the next 100 years, each of us will be no more. We'll be dead. Unless, of course, Jesus comes before. Come, Lord Jesus, come, please. It doesn't matter how much you may exercise or how, how healthy you may eat. You have no control over when you will die. But die you will. Worry not only cuts life short, but worry also makes whatever is remaining of our life miserable. In verse 27 through 30, the Lord provides another picture, another illustration, emphasizing what it is that He wants us to understand. Take a look at the field of the lilies. They don't toil nor spin, and yet look how they grow. These wild flowers are not merely clothed, they are cladded with such grandeur that not even the magnificent King Solomon could compare. Second Chronicles chapter 9, verses 13 through 28 says that the weight of gold which came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, which was in addition to that which the traders and merchants brought. And all the kings of Arabia... And the governors of the, of the country, they brought gold and silver to Solomon. Solomon made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. And there were six steps to the throne and a footstool in gold attached to the throne. And arms on each side of the seat. Two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were also standing there on six steps on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. Now all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. And once every three years the ships of Tarshish came carrying gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So so King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth were seeking the presence, of, the, the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, a set amount year by year. Solomon 
was the ruler over the king from the river, even to the land of the Philistines, to the border of Egypt. He was so stinking rich that he made silver as plentiful as stones in Jerusalem. He made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the Shephelah. He imported horses from Egypt and from all countries. But notice the shift in verse 28. Jesus had been talking about these magnificent lilies, which are more splendid than the magnificent King Solomon. And notice how he refers to them in verse 28. The grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace. Jesus is saying that even these beautiful lilies, which he regards as just grass, they're inconsequential in light of eternity. And their witherings point to the fact that our lives here on this earth is finite, it's temporal, it's short-lived. And there's a tension between how insignificant the birds and the flowers are and how important you are. They are, these birds, these lilies, they're so insignificant and yet God cares for them and God feeds them. How much more will he provide for you? Just as certain as he provides for the ravens and the lilies, so he will provide for you and me. When you are anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink, it shows your little faith. You are not trusting in God. You and I have been made in the image of God. And Christian, you and I have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which He shed on the cross to pay sin's penalty in full so that we might be forgiven and reconcile to a holy God so that we might be set free from our idolatry of wealth and possessions and this vain life, and that we might live in Him and through Him and for Him. We, of all people, should be the last who are anxious about what we shall eat or drink or wear. Jesus issues two commands in verse 29. Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. Do not keep worrying. Because as he explains in verse 30, to seek after all these things is pagan. It's idolatrous. It's heathen. It's atheistic. Pagans seek after these things because they do not know God. They are self-deceived as to what is truly important in this life. But for you and I, the knowledge of God's love for us and our love for Him casts out all anxiety. If God provides daily bread in answer to our prayer, why should we be frantically seeking after it? And why should we be seeking after more than what we need? So what is it that we should be seeking? Jesus tells us what we should seek in verse 31 and 32. Seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for your Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Jesus is not saying that if you seek God's kingdom, His, his kingdom, and, and place yourself under His rule and His reign, that He's going to give you a large sum of money or a warehouse full of toys. No, Jesus is saying that if your primary goal is to know and serve Him, to live in obedience to Him, then material abundance will no longer be the driving force of your life. Your physical circumstances will not be your primary concern. Like the Apostle Paul, you can say, I learn to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. 
It's clear that Paul can say this because his treasure is not located in the things of this world. The way that you store your treasure, your possessions in heaven, is by giving it away. Jesus concludes his teaching on wealth and possessions in verse 33 and 34 by saying, actually he commands, sell your possessions and give it as charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing, tre- an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To store up your treasures on earth is to hoard your possessions like the rich fool. But Jesus provides an example, one of the many examples that we can follow as we attempt and strive to store up our treasures with God in heaven. And that is by giving our money away to the needy, by storing wealth in heaven, in heaven's treasury. For indeed, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart is so tied to the fleeting things of this world, your heavenly treasure will be bankrupt. And quite frankly, if your heart is invested, so invested with physical wealth and possessions, there is a great probability that you might not inherit heaven at all. Unless, of course, you repent. You turn from your love of money. You you repent of your misplaced trust. Your misplaced security. And you place your confident trust in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. He, indeed, is the greatest treasure that we can ever possess. And you joyfully submit to seeking His kingdom. Living under His rule, His reign, fulfilling His will as recorded in Scripture. Walking by faith. Seek His kingdom above all else. In 2010, I wanted to marry Claire. And I remember wrestling in the beginning of that year. I sell houses. I don't get a fixed salary. I only earn commission. How am I able to support a family? At the heart of my struggle was faithlessness. Do I trust God to provide for me and my family? I took a step of faith in May 2010, and we were engaged. Two months later, the Lord blessed me with a full-time offer, which included a comfortable, basic, great commission structure, a car allowance, and a cell phone allowance. The Lord provided much more than what we needed. In 2016, I was at the peak of my commercial property-broking career, earning way too much money, not knowing what I should do with all that the Lord's entrusted to me, but I vividly remember thinking, all the money, all the holidays, all the whining and dining is vanity. It's all vanity. It's meaningless. Is this really what God has called me to do? Is this really the purpose of my life? Well, I think you know the story. Later that year, I quit my job. And Claire and my two sons went off to California, jumped on a plane so that I could study at the master's seminary and take a wild guess what was the source of my great anxiety. Would I be able to provide for my family? The exchange rate was over 17 rand to the dollar, which reduced our savings by 40%. Not being able to get a job for the first three months, and then when I finally got a job, it was only 20 hours a week at minimum wage. Now all of a sudden, we found ourselves in a very different situation. For the first time in our marriage, our expenses were higher than what we earned. How do we live on less than what it costs to live? The answer, God. God. Give us this day our daily bread. God took care of us. 
He providentially orchestrated all the events and circumstances where He took care of our every need plus more. And ever since I quit my job at J.H. Isaacs, the Lord has faithfully provided for our every need plus more. But every day, Claire and I walk by faith, trusting the Lord to provide what He deems fit. Every day praying that He would enable us, that He would strengthen us in Christ to be content in all circumstances, whatever circumstances He takes us through. Praying that we would be faithful and generous stewards of all that He has entrusted to us. Not using, not using it for our own selfish gratification or our own glory, but for the good of others and for God's glory. And thus storing up treasure with God in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your teaching on wealth and material possessions, which really seems to be the idol of our age, the crutch, the hindrance to the salvation of men and women and children. Oh God, please rid us of this idol. Put it to death. Burn it at the stake, Lord, that we would prize, that we would treasure Jesus Christ above all else. Help us, O oh God, to recognize that our life consists in far more than food and drink and clothing. Our life in Christ, knowing Him, treasuring Him, living for Him, using all that you've entrusted to us for Him and His glory, there is no greater joy. There is no greater privilege than that. Grow us, help us, cause us, O oh God, to walk by faith to know this wise, generous way and to trust you for tomorrow. To not worry about tomorrow, knowing that today has sufficient concerns for itself. Thank you, Lord, that in times of need, we can trust your providence, that our circumstances are exactly as you have determined, decreed. And in times of loss, in times when you take things away, those are opportunities where we get to see that Christ is worth more. He is more valuable than that which you have taken away. Christ is supreme. And in times of abundance, help us to be wise stewards, for we will stand accountable as to how we have stewarded that which you've entrusted to us. Help us to be generous and faithful and wise, storing up treasures with God in heaven. Lord, we need so much help from you to grow in this area. Please help us, we pray. Amen.